So in the second session, we've got a lot to cover. We're going to cover all of the literature of John, which is his gospel, his three epistles, and the book of Revelation. We're also going to talk about the book of Acts uh, of the apostles, and we're going to talk about James's uh, epistle. And I'm actually, I realized that I'm not actually talking about them chronologically, so I... But don't worry, I'll tell you where they fit. But we're <laughs> so there you go. I guess I should have thought about that before today. Um, but it, we're going to start with the Gospel of John, okay? And the Gospel of John was written by John the disciple probably sometime in the last 25 years of the first century. So this would have been after all the events of the Gospel, obviously, and all the events of the Book of Acts. So John is writing kind of during the last quarter of the century. And he was a son of a man who operated a fishing business up in Galilee. If you remember Graham's map, or there's one in the handout, you know, Galilee is in that northern region of Palestine, of Canaan, and so he operates a fishing business there, probably, you know, near the Sea of Galilee. And all the Gospels show him as one of the inner circle of disciples, along with Peter and along with James. And in the Synoptic Gospels, we see a picture of John as this intense guy. There's one story from Luke that Jesus is on his way. Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, and they pass through this Samaritan village, and the Samaritans do not receive Jesus. And so John is like, hey, how about we call fire down from heaven, and we'll just crush this place. And so we see John is pretty intense, and there's another story where John's mother, John and James's mom, is like, hey, Jesus, how about one of my sons sit at your right, and my other son sits at your left in your kingdom? And Jesus says, you know, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And, and John is like, yeah, certainly we can do that. You know, we can do anything. And so we see this ambitious and this kind of bold and this slightly aggressive John uh, as, a, as pictured in the Gospels. But what's interesting is that he becomes known through his gospel and through his epistles as the apostle of love. You know, his writings talk a lot about God's love for us and how we are supposed to live with each other in love. And I just think that that's an interesting picture that Jesus takes this kind of bold and intense guy and, you know, and just he becomes the apostle of love. No longer does, is he asking to rain fire down on people that don't agree with him. But his heart is to draw people into a relationship with Jesus. The theme of John's gospel is probably familiar to all of us. You probably memorized it in Sunday school or at some point, maybe at a football game. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so we see this purpose, you know, for John's gospel revealed through this verse, um, that he wants to reveal Jesus as the incarnate Son of God, you know, that he is the Messiah who has come to bring eternal life to everybody who believes in him. So Graham talked about, you know, the, the focus of the, the other synoptic gospels, you know, Matthew was writing to reveal the, the servant king. Well, John is really writing to reveal that Jesus is the Son of God, and that is where he starts. 
And at the very end, of, near the end of the gospel, in chapter 20, it says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we can see that John's purpose in writing is to draw people into this relationship, to, to reveal that Jesus is the Son of God. And he wants to move them into this saving faith of Christ. And he wants to show that Jesus is a pre-existing Son of God. You know, that he, wasn't, he didn't just show up during the, this miraculous birth, but he actually pre-existed. And Graham talked about, you know, in the first chapter of John, it says, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And so we see this rich theology come from John that's not talking about when Jesus was born, but that Jesus has always existed, that he pre-existed before the world was born, before the world was created. And so he wants to reveal Jesus as this divine son of God, and he does this in two primary ways. And the first thing that we see as we kind of overview, as we look over the Gospel of John, is we see that he has seven select signs that Jesus performs during his ministry. In the other Gospels, we see Jesus performing many, many miracles everywhere he goes. He's healing sick people and, you know, casting out demons. He's doing all this amazing stuff. But John just focuses on seven significant things that Jesus does. And he actually, in the Gospel, you'll, you'll notice that he calls them signs. He doesn't always call them miracles. He calls them the signs of Jesus, the sign that Jesus performed. And the reason, I believe, is that he was trying to emphasize the significance of what Jesus was doing, and not just the marvel or the wonder of this amazing miracle that Jesus did, but it was, there's a reason that Jesus came. There's a reason that Jesus did this miracle, this sign. And so the seven signs that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John are the changing of water into wine in Cana, the healing of, of an official son, healing the disabled man at the pool of Bethesda, feeding the 5,000 walking on water, healing the man born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. So seven significant and selected signs that Jesus performed. The next, the second way that, that Jesus shows that, that Jesus, excuse me, the second way that John shows that Jesus was the pre-existing divine Son of God are through seven I Am statements. Okay? And these all point to Jesus. They all reveal who Jesus is. And as we read through them, you can see, as you read through the gospel, you see Jesus say, I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. And all these statements point people to that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that they'd been looking for. All of the prophets, all of the histories, all of the law are summed up and find their completion in Jesus. You know, he's saying that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And he's, John is trying to get this point across that it is Jesus, the Son of God, that everything else has been coming and pointing to this exact moment. And in John 8, 58, there's a, Jesus says this. He says, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. 
And this is an amazing story, and I'm actually going to read these, it's, uh, these few verses, 48 to 58, from the Gospel of John, the chapter 8, where Jesus is talking to these Jewish, uh, these Jewish people, and he says, The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? And, and Jesus is like, you know, I'm not possessed by a demon, uh, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And so at this, you know, all the Jews are like, what? They exclaim, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do not know him, or I do know him, and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And then they say, you are not 50 years old, and yet you have seen Abraham? And then Jesus says this, amazing. He says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they pick up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And so I've heard people say that, you know, Jesus never came out right out and said that I'm the Messiah, you know. But this is like, this is incredibly significant. You know, Jesus is, uh, you know, calling back to this story from Exodus chapter 3, you know, that, that happened thousands of years before this. And all the Jews know this story. This is the story of Moses at the, at the burning bush, and Moses is like, Jesus, or he's like, hey, burning bush, if, if, you, if I'm gonna, supposed to go and set these people free from, from Egypt, and they ask me who who is it that sends you? What am I supposed to say? I don't even know your name. And God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So God gives his name to Moses. And so then fast forward to Jesus. Here he's saying that before Abraham was born, I am. And so he is saying that I am God. I am who you've been waiting for. And it is, you know, it's so significant. And it's this blasphemous thing that he says, right? And so all the Jews pick up stones to kill him because they can't believe that anybody would say that. Brilliant. So um, there are a number of differences, of peculiarities of John's gospel that I just wanted to touch on. And we see a Jesus conscious of having preexisted before he came into the world. In John 17, 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So we see Jesus, not only did he pre-exist Abraham, not only was he around when Abraham was living, but he was around before the entire world came into existence. And the, the other Gospels, they don't, they don't talk about this as much. You know, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and we see the nativity scene. But in John's Gospel, it's a Jesus who has preexisted with God. We see in the Gospel of John the public ministry that's largely set in Jerusalem rather than Galilee. The synoptics have Jesus spending a lot more time up in the northern region up there in, in Galilee. But John spends a lot of time in Jerusalem. 
we see in the Gospel of John Jesus having these long discourses with people as opposed to the parables and the stories that we're familiar with throughout the, the synoptic Gospels. For example, you know, he talks to the, the Samaritan woman at the well, and he has a long discussion with Nicodemus. And so it's just a different style that we see coming out from the Gospel of John. We already talked about the restricted number of miracles. We talked about how, the, you know, John doesn't talk about the nativity. He also, interestingly, talks about three trips to Jerusalem, whereas the other Gospels only talk about, you know, that Jesus' final trip to, to Jerusalem when he dies. And in the Gospel of John, we also find that the, the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet during the Last Supper. And so those are some of kind of the differences that we find in the Gospel of John. But now we're just going to move on, and we're going to talk a little bit about the, the three epistles that John wrote. And these were all uh, written by John, the same guy that wrote the Gospel. And the first letter doesn't have a—doesn't uh, indicate a recipient. We don't know who it was written to, so most likely it was a circular letter that spread around uh, the region. And it is about fellowship. It's about a life of sharing ourselves with God and sharing ourselves with others. He writes to expose false teachers, and he writes to give believers um, an assurance of salvation. And he also sets out some tests for authentic Christianity. He says, you know, that if you're an authentic Christian, you're going to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the Son of God. You're going to obey uh, Christ's commands, and you're going to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the, the book of 1 John is very encouraging, and a book that continues to talk about the theme of love for God and love for people that we see in his gospel. The second epistle, the second letter of John, is written to urge discernment in supporting traveling teachers. It seemed that there were some, some people coming that— uh, that were claiming that Jesus hadn't come in the flesh, and these were the Gnostic people. And this Gnosticism was this belief that kind of sprang up during this time, or I'm not sure when it sprang up. It was definitely prevalent at this time, and they believed that the flesh was bad, but the spirit was good, and so they said that, you know, Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And, and, there, and so the early Christians had to kind of fight this Gnosticism. So John is writing that saying, you know, that Jesus did come in the flesh, and as Christians, that's important that Jesus was fully human, that he really did die in the flesh. And so John is writing to help them to discern that from these traveling teachers. The book of 3 John is uh, just a letter of encouragement to his friend Gaius, and it's a very short little letter. And so those are the three epistles of John. And the next thing I'm going to talk about is the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation, we're out of chronological order now. The book of Revelation is written uh, much later. It's written probably in 95 AD, John, again by John the Apostle. And he is on the island of Patmos, which is probably this penal colony of the Romans. And he has gotten arrested and thrown on this island because of his uh, missionary work and spreading the gospel. Because this guy by the name of Domitian is the emperor of Rome, and he is increasing the, the persecution on the church during this time at the very end of the first century. Domitian has decided that 
uh, as Caesar, as the emperor, that he should be worshipped as a god. And certainly we know that the Christians and the Jewish people are not going to worship Domitian as a god, and so they refuse to do that. And so they're facing all this increased hostility. John is thrown onto this island. And so he is writing this book to exhort these seven churches in Asia Minor uh, to stand fast in, these, in the perilous days ahead. And he writes of this final showdown between God and Satan, and that, uh, you know, that Satan is going to increase, and that persecution of believers is going to increase, but they're supposed to stand fast, even unto death, that they're supposed to, you know, make a stand for Jesus Christ, and that, that they're going to be sealed, and they're going to be protected from any, you know, supernatural or, or any spiritual harm, and that on the last days, when Jesus Christ comes back the second time, that they will be vindicated when he returns. The book of Revelation is called apocalyptic literature, which means it is highly symbi symbolic. And as you read through it, you see lots of seals and scrolls and angels and witnesses, and there's a dragon, and there's all this, this like seemingly crazy stuff happening. And, and it's a prophetic book that speaks you know, of the end of the age, you know, before the, and right up to and just after the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I was actually talking about this with Amber, and I was like, man, i got to talk about Revelation, and, and there's all these symbols, and I'm like, what, you know, what am I going to do? And Amber <laughs> said, I should, yeah, it'll be fine. So Amber is like, Amber said, she's like, well, you know, the book of Revelation, nobody understands the book of Revelation. It's probably, it's not even meant to be understood. And, I, and so I was like, well, actually, honey, Actually, I, I, I was like, I read this, this quote from, from my Bible dictionary, Unger's Bible dictionary. I'm just going to read this quote to you. And, and it's just, it says, It is mere pious pratting to say that God does not intend this book to be understood, or that the symbolism and figures of the prophecy are incomprehensible. So I told Amber, I was like, stop your pious pratting, okay? Please. And uh, the figures and symbols of the book which furnish the basis of its interpretation are found elsewhere in divine revelation and can only be understood in the light of a coherent and connected comparative study of all other lines of prophecy and prophetic type and symbolism as they converge upon the book, on the book of Revelation. Interpretation of the book demands a thorough acquaintance with all the other great prophecies which merge into this book. And so this... Unger is saying that, you know, this book can be understood, but we need to have a grasp of the prophetic literature from the Old Testament and the prophetic writings of, of Peter and the prophetic writings that we see elsewhere in the New Testament, and that it can be understood. It just takes some work. And so, because we have a limited time, I, I can't break it all down for you. I would encourage you just to go ahead and make an appointment with Cameron, and he would be glad, he would be glad to go over that with you. But I do want to look at four kind of classic views of interpretation of the book of Revelation. And there's, there's four that I stumbled on uh, in a couple of different books as I was studying for this. There's these guys named the Preterists or the Preterists, and they see the book as kind of primarily in the terms of its first century setting and claiming that most of its events and all the things that have happened have already taken place. Then there's the, the historicists who they kind of take the, the book as describing the events starting from the island of Patmos where John is all the way to the end of history and that we're just kind of somewhere in the middle of this prophecy. 
There's the futurists who take a look at the book and kind of see it, you know, that's primarily at the end times and, you know, all the symbolism stuff. We don't have to worry about that right now. That's all happening. That's going to be happening later. And then there's the idealists that view it as uh, symbolic pictures of times and of timeless truths like the good versus evil. And so they kind of see it as this kind of almost an allegory or this kind of story about, you know, that there are some stuff happening in the spirit, you know, and the good is going to uh, overtake the evil, but they don't see it as actually um, happening in reality in our world. Does that make sense? So, and so those are kind of the four um, classic interpretations of Revelation, and you can go ahead and pick your favorite. All right, enough of Revelation. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. That's a tough one. All right. So now that we're going to jump back into the chronological order, okay? We're going to talk about the book of Acts. Um, in this, in the, the book of Acts, we see the emergence of this new Christian community as it expands through the heart and out to the borders of the Roman Empire. And there are a number of things, and we kind of touched on these a little bit during the intertestamental period. There's a number of things that happen that allowed the gospel to spread quickly and to spread relatively easily throughout the Roman Empire. We talked about the, the common language, you know, throughout the region, that everybody spoke Greek. And so that everywhere that Paul or the other missionaries went, they were able to communicate uh, in a common language. They didn't have to have interpreters. You know, they could, everywhere they go, whatever synagogue they went into, whatever region of the empire they're at, they were able to communicate through this common language. We also know that when Rome came in, they brought with them what's, what's called the Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace. And so the heart of the empire was at, at peace during this time. There were still skirmishes and battles being fought on the, the outskirts of the empire. But in the heart of the empire, where Paul was and where he was traveling around, there was peace. And so he's easily able to travel back and forth. And he will, later we'll talk about his three missionary journeys and we'll see just how far he was able to travel. And then one other thing that I found really interesting is that, you know, how is this guy, you know, without a, without a car, you know, without airplanes, how is he able to get around so easily and so quickly throughout this region? Well, the Romans built this extensive um, set of, of roads throughout the, throughout the empire. Some people say that there are nearly 55,000 miles of Roman roads built uh, in the Roman Empire. And they, they were built by the Roman military in order to move their troops from one part of the, the empire to another part of the empire. The way they were able to keep control of such a large area of land was that they were able to move their troops quickly and consistently. Roads before the brilliantly engineered Roman roads would get muddy in the rainy season. They would get slowed down, so they wouldn't be able to know how long it was going to take troops to get from one place to another. So these Roman roads, you know, nothing like them had been built before, and really nothing like them was built after them for hundreds of years. And so it's another of this kind of divine uh, appointment that God's like, oh, I'm going to build these highways, that the gospel is going to be able to quickly spread on these highways. It's really pretty amazing if you look at it. So, um, this is the, just a time frame of the book of Acts. The book takes place uh, right after the, the crucifixion, which uh, is, you know, somewhere between 30, 33 A.D., um, and it takes place, it goes all the way through to about 68 A.D., okay? So, just uh, about three or four 
um, decades. I knew there was one that was 10 decades, um, happened in the book of Acts. The book was written by Luke, and we see the, the story of the early church unfold. This is like Graham said, it's part two of the, the gospel of Luke, and it picks up immediately where Luke's gospel leaves off. You know, we, and we, through this story, through this book, we see the transformation of the biblical faith. We see it's just, at the beginning, it's just a handful of Jewish people, and then just in a few short decades of Acts, it spreads out and becomes this universal religion throughout the known world to all different people groups. And in it, we also see the coming of the promised Holy Spirit, that falls on the new believers, and we can see that the spread of the gospel isn't just because, you know, it's a good philosophy, that it's a, it's a, it's a you know, a good religion to, it makes for a good life, but it is supernaturally um, spurned on by God to be spread throughout the world. We see the book focus on primarily two men. The first half, we see it talking about Peter, and Peter was the disciple who denied Jesus three times before his resurrection. Jesus forgives him, draws him back in, and says, You are, I'm going to call you the rock, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. And we see Jesus restore him and actually use him in an incredibly significant way to build his church in the first century. And the second half of the book is, we, focuses on a guy by the name of Paul, who is initially Saul, and he is a persecutor of the church, and he is radically transformed when he meets Jesus face-to-face -face after Jesus' resurrection. And he becomes uh, the faith's greatest missionary and the faith's greatest theologian. And so we're going to dig into the book of Acts a little bit here. And if you take a big picture of Luke, it's, uh, you can see there's different um, expansions or surges uh, of the gospel as as Luke portrays it. We see it starting in the Jerusalem church and then it expands out to Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And we see it including the first Gentiles and then we see the Gentile evangelism and then finally the establishment of the Gentile church. And so we're just going to talk about these five different surges and the first one is the Jerusalem church. And in Acts 1.8, it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this is Jesus' uh, last message to his, his disciples. He says, you know, just go to Jerusalem and, and wait. The promised Holy Spirit is going to fall on you, and then you are going to be my witnesses. And we see the disciples at the beginning of Acts waiting in Jerusalem, waiting for this promised Holy Spirit. And they are, they're called disciples up, up to this point, which means learner. But we see a transformation of the position of the disciples um, in the book of Acts. They become called, they come, they're called the apostles, which means one sent on a mission. And so it's like they've kind of taken a step forward. They're no longer the learners. Now they're the ones going out, and they're the ones fulfilling the mission that Jesus sent them on. And in chapter 2 uh, is the story of Pentecost, when the Spirit falls and the people of Jerusalem are significantly confused by what's going on. There's 120 disciples of Jesus, and the Spirit falls on them. And all the, the, the crowd in Jerusalem hears them speaking in their own language. You know, they, there had been people had come from all over the empire to Jerusalem 
for the Passover, and they're all, there's a lot of them still there, and they can hear these disciples, these, these people talking in their, their own language, and they're like, are these people drunk? What is going on? And so Peter gets up, and he addresses the crowd, and at this, at this time, like this day, 3,000 people are saved. You know, and so when Jesus gets up, I think that sometimes we kind of have a disconnect that, you know, oh, you know, this is, you know, Jesus was, you know, Jesus died, you know, and then later on the book of Acts happens. But this is significant because Jesus had just been crucified. This wasn't years and years later. This had just happened. And so Peter gets up and says, hey, remember last week when you killed that guy? That was Jesus. He was the Messiah. He is the Savior. And so it's this incredible, um, this, um, this incredible message that he gives, and 3,000 people get saved, you know? And I just think that it's, it's an amazing proof of the resurrection, of the proof of Jesus that these disciples who, you know, just a little bit ago were hiding, they were scared, they didn't know what was going on, Jesus was dead, you know, it was all over. They didn't, and, you know, in the you know, they're in Jerusalem. They're kind of up in, in this upper room. They're hiding. They don't, they don't want to get arrested and killed. You know, they just want to kind of get out of here. You know, and they, so they don't know what to do with it. And suddenly Jesus appears to them. And these same scared little disciples rise up. And right in the midst of Jerusalem where Jesus was arrested and where Jesus was murdered, they boldly speak the truth that Jesus was the Messiah and that you Jews, you are the ones that killed him. You killed God, the Son of God. And it's, it's, it's amazing as we look at this transformation of the disciples. That's a side note. Let's get back to the story. Um, so, that's a good side note, I agree. So, so this happens. Those 3,000 people get saved, and there, suddenly there's, there's some persecution from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. But the church grows to about 5,000 believers at, at this time during this uh, this surge or this expansion of the gospel in in the book of Acts. And this section ends in Acts 6-7, and it says this, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a, no, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And so that kind of wraps up Luke's Jerusalem church section. All right, and so we see the church in Jerusalem is thriving and is increasing but some persecution is starting to happen. And then this persecution from the Sanhedrin, including situations like the stoning of Stephen, uh, stimulate the expansion of the gospel out of the city. And in Acts 8, verses 1 to 3, it says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so we see that there's persecution coming against the church in Jerusalem. And we see the entrance of this guy named Saul, who is going to be pretty significant in a, in a couple of chapters here. And the church is that was kind of focused in Jerusalem because of this persecution is forced out into Judea and Samaria. Very similar to what Jesus said, that you were going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, and unto the ends of the earth. So we see it beginning to expand. And then in Acts 8-4, the next verse, it says, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. 
So this persecution is actually kind of forcing the, uh, the gospel out of Jerusalem. And it just reminds me, there's this one time I was, uh, I, was I played, we, I had some friends, and we played in a band, and we, we had this, there's a practice space. Let's say the practice space was this little um, three-season porch, and we could look out the window, and you could see the, this guy's, the dad's lab, he was a, he made um, dentures, right? And so he had Bunsen burners and he had all this stuff, right? And so he, uh, and so sometimes we would stop practicing and we would go into his lab and just mess with things, right? And so one day we, we set something on fire and, and it was, the, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it, there was this big, like, there's a Bunsen burner and there's all this fire and we're like, uh-oh, we need to do something. So we went and we got like some pails of water and we threw this pail of water on it, and it just explodes, and it fills this entire room um, with, with, with flame, right? And so we end up getting a fire extinguisher and, and putting it out. And my friend Mark and I left, and we we're like, well, have fun with that. We'll see you, we'll see you at school. And so, but this, the expansion, it kind of, it's kind of, to me, it has the same idea. It's like here, you know, the gospel is kind of burning in Jerusalem. And so the, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish uh, non-believers, they decide we need to put this out, and so they kind of throw some water on it, and all of a sudden it expands out into Judea and Samaria and Galilee. And so there's this guy by the name of Philip, and he uh, preaches in Samaria, which is that region just north of Judah that we talked about last last week, um, that when Israel was taken away by the Assyrians, they moved some people in. And so the Samaritans, they, because they were in the land of Israel, they worshipped Yahweh, kind of, and they also worshipped uh, the other gods that they'd grown up worshipping. And so it was this kind of mixture. And so as we, if you remember, the, the Jewish people didn't like the Samaritans because they weren't pure Yahweh worshippers. They weren't Jews. And so Philip goes out, and he preaches to the Samaritan people, and they believe, and they're baptized, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So a little unexpected to the Jews that, oh, you know, now the Holy Spirit is being poured out on Samaritans. Saul, the guy who was standing there when, uh, what's his name? Stephen, thank you. When Stephen was killed, we see him at the, in this uh, section of Acts encountering Jesus on his way to Damascus. He's on his way to, to imprison some Christians, but Jesus reveals himself to him, and he's, uh, and he's radically converted. And from that moment on, he is just this, um, he, his name changes to Paul, and he's just this amazing missionary and theologian and writer for the Christian church. And this section of expansion ends in chapter 931, where it says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. And so now we see that the church was expanding in Jerusalem. Now it's expanding throughout the regions around it. And then in chapter 9, verse 32, we, start, we see the inclusion of the first Gentiles. And this is a quote from a guy by the name of Richards, which was one of the resources that I used. He said, The church had spread to Jewish communities beyond Jerusalem. Even the Samaritans had, accept, had been accepted in the new community. But no one who is a Gentile, a pure pagan, and thus one of the Jews' hated enemies, had responded to the gospel. So we see that the, the, the faith is 
is going beyond the pure Jews. It's now to the Samaritans. But Peter is instructed by God to go with a man by the name of Cornelius, who is a Gentile, who is a non-Jew, a pure pagan. And he is instructed to preach to him. And so Peter goes to his house, and while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on the entire crowd in Cornelius' house. And this is significant as we see the Holy Spirit pouring out on non-Jews. And the other scattered believers during this section, we see them traveling and taking the message to Phoenicia. We take it, they take it up to Cyprus and Antioch. And in Antioch, the, the good news uh, is spread to the Greeks in this city. And Paul and Barnabas stay in this church for nearly a year, encouraging them and raising them up, the church of Antioch. There is persecution at this time from the various places, but Luke ends his section with this in 1224. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. And so we see at the end of each of these sections, Luke is saying that shows that the church is continuing to grow. It is continuing to spread, even amidst the persecution that they're facing. And so now the Gentiles have heard the good news. And the next section is considered is called the establishment of the Gentile church. And we see Paul and Barnabas, they um, go on their missionary journey. Hmm, I think I missed a slide. Sorry. So Paul and Barnabas, they're on their missionary journeys. Uh, excuse me. Apologize. And they are traveling around encouraging the various churches in the, in the Gentile church. And so Paul is, is sent out to these people. And eventually Paul and Barnabas have a, a disagreement. So they, they part ways in Paul and Silas. And at this point, Luke joins them uh, on their journey. And they continue um, on, on their second and their third missionary journeys. And, the, the, and they are establishing the, the Gentile church. We see Paul going into a city, going to the synagogue, and, and preaching the good news to the, the Jewish people and any God-fearers uh, who would have been Gentiles or you know, non-Jews that followed uh, Yahweh, that he would preach them and we would see them get saved and he would stay there for a little bit until moving on and doing the same thing in the next city. And so... It, so after his, I, I'm missing some notes. I'm sorry. There's one thing I wanted to touch on that uh, there that after I believe it was after Paul's first missionary journey, they come back to Jerusalem, and there is what's con what's called the Jerusalem Council. I believe this is somewhere in 15 or 16, the chapter 15 or 16 of Acts, and they come back after these Gentiles are being saved, and they have to wrestle with this, this question of, you know, do the Gentiles need to convert to Judaism in order to be Christians? Do they need to follow all the cultural laws of, of Judaism in order to be saved? And so James, who we're going to talk about a little bit later, the brother of Jesus, is apparently the head of this council. And so they get together, and Paul and Barnabas and all these kind of bigwigs are there, and they're discussing this. And the, the Jerusalem council decides, you know what, we do not want to make it difficult for these new Gentile believers to accept the faith. And so they decided that instead of forcing them to be circumcised, instead of forcing them to become Jewish, that we're just going to 
recommend these four things. And these four things were to abstain from sexual immorality, not to, no blood, no unbutchered meat. And there's one other thing. Meat offered to idols, blood, no circumcision. So they decide not, they don't, you don't have to become Jewish to be uh, a Christian. And so they send this letter out to all the different churches, all the Gentile churches. And so after this, a little bit later, Paul, after his missionary journeys, feels compelled by the Spirit to go back to Jerusalem. And the, the different people uh, kind of try to encourage him not to because there's been some prophetic words that he's going to be imprisoned and that he's going to be killed. And they're like, just don't go there. But Paul says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And so we see that Paul is, is committed to going back to Jerusalem. He has done a really good job of fulfilling his mission of preaching to all the Gentile nations, but he's also been called to preach to the political leaders. And so we see him coming back into Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, Paul is taken in, taken into uh, as a prisoner when he's in the temple by these unbelieving Jews. And while they're trying to, to kill him, these Roman troops come down and they, they, they take Paul away before they're able to kill him. And the commander of the troops who's arrested Paul orders him to be flogged and to figure out, you know, why is it that he's causing this big commotion. But Paul reveals that he is a Roman citizen, so they're like, all right, well, we better not flog him then. Um, and so the next day, he is taken back to the, uh, in front of the Sanhedrin to find, try to find out what's going on. And Paul causes this big stir. He brings up the whole, you know, I'm just, they're just mad because I believe in, you know, the resurrection of the body. And so this gets the Sadducees and the Pharisees all stirred up because they have kind of the opposite view on this. And once again, the commander of the troops has to take Paul out because it's this big ruckus. And so they're decided, all right, we need to figure this out. Let's, let's take him back. We're going to take him back to the Sanhedrin. We'll figure it out. But there's uh, a murder plot is uncovered. And so the leader of the troops is like, all right, I can't leave Paul here. We're going to send him over to Caesarea where Governor Felix is, and we're going to let that guy uh, kind of deal with it. And so Paul is transferred to Caesarea, and Ananias, the high priest, comes there and you know, tries to convince Felix that, this, that Paul should be killed. But Felix decides he shouldn't be, but he wants to kind of appease the Jews at the same time. So he just keeps Paul prisoner for a couple years. And then Felix uh, is replaced by Governor Festus, and Paul, and in his trial before Festus, he appeals to Caesar. And so Paul is going to be sent on to the city of Rome. And right before he leaves, he talks to this guy by the name of King Agrippa. And so we see Paul, you know, kind of talking to all these political and religious leaders uh, and preaching the gospel to them. And now he is on his way to Rome to preach the gospel there as well. And so once in Rome, you know, there's a storm and there's a shipwreck and there's some exciting things that happen. But eventually Paul gets to Rome and he is allowed to live by himself. There is just a single soldier that guards him. And so he's under house arrest for a couple years just waiting for his trial before Caesar. And he's able to witness to Jewish leaders there in Rome. And the book of Acts says that some of them believed. 
And it is here that he stays under house arrest for two years in Rome. And Acts, the book of Acts, ends on this triumphant note, right? Despite being under house arrest, Paul is preaching and he's teaching in Rome, which is the capital city of, of the Roman Empire, with, of the known world. And it says that he's preaching with all boldness and without hindrances. So it's this incredible story that we take, you know, there's 120 Jews at the beginning of Acts, and now here there's thousands of believers all around the empire, and Paul is in the heart of that empire preaching the gospel. And Paul, it looks like he is going to, he is, I think most people believe that he's released at this point, um, that he never actually, I don't know if he ever actually talks to Caesar or not. I don't, I don't think we know that. Um, and some think he died a couple years after this, after another Roman imprisonment. He may have gone up to Spain. But the book of Acts ends on an exciting note with the, the gospel being preached throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, and all of the known world. All right, so now, just to, to wrap up, I'm just going to touch on the book of James. And James, the author, is actually the brother of Jesus. And he was uh, very important. Like we said, you know, he, was in the, he was the leader of the Jerusalem Council there in Jerusalem that Paul and Barnabas came to. We see Paul often talking about when he goes to Jerusalem, he visits James, and James is, is very significant. Um, James was one of the individuals that Jesus revealed himself to Oops. After, after his resurrection. There we go. Thank you. Um, and Paul calls him a pillar of the church. And so he's a pretty significant and important gentleman, right? Uh, James was martyred in about 62 AD, according to this uh, Jewish writer by the name of Josephus. And we think the letter of James was written in the, the late 40s or early 50s, and which would make it one of the earlier uh, epistles, one of the earlier Christian writings. And he is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. He says that it, it's addressed to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, and so which talks of you know, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it seems like he's talking to Jewish people. The central theme of James's book is faith that works, you know, and it mostly talks about the Christian walk or our Christian lifestyle and how does faith work itself out in our, in our lives. And in James 2.26, he says, faith without deeds is dead. There is no such thing as true faith that does not express itself in a life of godliness. And I, as I was researching, I found this, this portion written in my, the NIV study Bible. Uh, he's writing, it was one of the comments from James 2, 14 to 26. I just want to quickly share it with you. And it says, in these verses, 14 to 26, faith is not used in the sense of the genuine saving faith, but rather it is demonic, it is useless, and dead. It is a mere intellectual acceptance of certain truths without trust in Christ as Savior. So we can see that James isn't actually talking about the same kind of faith that Paul talks about in his letters. And it goes on to say, um, James is also not saying that a person is saved by works and not, by, and not genuine faith. Rather, he is saying, to use Martin Luther's words, that people are justified or declared righteous before God by faith alone, 
but not by a faith that is alone. Genuine faith will produce good deeds, but only faith in Christ saves. So Martin Luther, pretty big deal. And so we can see that he is not, you know, some people kind of feel like he's contradicting what Paul is saying, but he's, he's not saying that at all. He's just teaching that actual real faith is going to produce good works. Uh, but he knows that only uh, that righteous action or that good works is an evidence of faith, not that it saves. So that is kind of the, uh, the core of what James is talking about. And so if, if you guys have any questions, anything came up while I was talking, just jot it down in the notes section. At the end of the, the, end of the class, after the third session, we're going to have a time of question and answers. Um, so just take a moment to write that down. And then we're going to take about a five or ten minute break, and then we will have our third session. Thank you.